Welcome to episode 192 of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. I'm a retired agent on a mission to show the public who the FBI is and what the FBI does through my books, my blog, and my podcast case reviews with former colleagues. Today, we get to speak to retired agent Kenneth Williams, who served in the FBI for nearly 30 years. He spent most of his career investigating foreign and domestic terrorism matters and took part in many high-profile terrorism investigations, including the bombing investigation of the A.P. Morrow Federal Building in Oklahoma City. In this episode, Ken Williams reviews the events that led him to write what is now known as the Phoenix Memo. He also reviews his untimely reassignment to work on the Phoenix Mountain Arsonist case and the aftermath of 9-11. Ken authored the Phoenix Memo prior to the September 11, 2001 terror attacks. The communication issued a warning to the intelligence community that Al-Qaeda members were training in the civil aviation community in the United States. Following the terrorist attacks, his memo became public and received attention from national news media. Ken testified before the United States House of Representatives and the United States Senate regarding terrorism matters and cooperated with the 9-11 Commission. Ken has extensive experience investigating sensitive international terrorism matters and has traveled for the Bureau to the Middle East, Europe, and Africa. During his FBI career, Ken has received prestigious commendations such as the CIA's Exceptional Human Intelligence Collector Award. Ken has appeared on local television news and has made many public appearances regarding terrorism matters. Currently, he works for Tollhurst International, LLC, a licensed private investigations firm that also provides security consultants, customizable training courses, and guest speaker services. Before we get to the interview, I have a few important things that I want to tell you about. First of all, just want to make sure that you heard my announcement that FBI Retired Case File Review will be on Podcast Row at CrimeCon 2020 in Orlando, Florida from May 1st through the 3rd. CrimeCon is the biggest true crime convention in the world. If you're going, I can't wait to meet you in person. If you use promo code FBI2020, you'll get 10% off your registration. And you can find the link to register on the homepage of my website, jerrywilliams.com. Also on the homepage, you will find some information about my webinar. I will be doing a webinar on FBI myths and misconceptions. Tuesday, January 28th at 8 p.m. for the National Sisters in Crime, an organization for women crime fiction authors and crime fiction lovers. I believe everyone, though, is invited 
You don't have to be a member. There is more information about how to register at jerrywilliams.com. The audiobook, ebook, paperback, and hardback for FBI myths and misconceptions are available wherever books are sold. You can find an easy link to some of the retailers in your podcast apps. Description of this episode. I also want to invite you to join my reader team. Once a month, I send out my email digest and try to keep you up to date on the FBI and books, TV, and movies. You can join on my website or use the link in the description of this episode in your podcast app. I want to thank you for your support. Now here's the show. I want to welcome my guest, Ken Williams. Hi, Ken. How you doing, Jerry? Well, I am so excited. First of all, I have to say thank you to your buddy, Keith Tolhurst, who suggested that I have you on the show. I think this is an important case and topic to discuss and to share. And so I really want to thank him for introducing us. And I want to thank you for saying yes. All right. Well, I appreciate it. I think what you're doing is very important. And uh, when Keith told me about your show and the concept of it, and then after talking to you personally, uh, it even solidified it even more. I think it's very important to get this type of stuff memorialized by agents across the country that have worked some pretty interesting cases, not only for the benefit of your your, your audience that are non-FBI agents, but hopefully FBI agent students, those that are in the academy right now, and then maybe those that are just right out of the academy, can listen to uh, veteran agents successes and mistakes and so they don't fall into the same pitfalls as we did or they can have the same successes as we did so thank you very much for the opportunity well excellent well I have spent several days you know reading articles and watching YouTube videos featuring you (laughs) and uh, I even uh, had a chance to read the redacted and unclassified Office of Inspector General's report from November of 2004, which was on the FBI's handling of the Phoenix memo. So I have a good background, but I'm only going to ask questions and jump in when I really need to. This is your opportunity to share your story. So where do you want to start? Well, I think what I want to do is, I think this is an important uh, uh, subject matter that we're taking on here because what it involves, it involves two separate cases that that really clashed together and uh, had tragic consequences, I believe. Uh, It it was a case that I started uh, uh, looking at some Islamic extremists, and then it was interrupted by a domestic uh, arson investigation. And I think it's important learning lesson, not only for agents, but for supervisors in the field to take away that when an agent tells you, hey, listen, I think this other case that I'm looking at is more important than the one you want to put me on, take that agent for his or her word and and let them continue on it. Uh, I'm not pointing the fingers at anybody at all. I mean, hindsight's always 2020, but I mean, uh, it, it is definitely a case where you shouldn't mix apples and oranges, and uh, because uh, it could result in some tragic uh, consequences, in my opinion. Well, one thing I do want to say before you really get into the case is <laughs> that when most people think about terrorism, especially international terrorism, they certainly don't think about Phoenix. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Yeah, and you know it, it, it. That's ironic because I we did a we did a case. It was called we called the uh, history of Al Qaeda in the United States. And uh, when you look back in time, going back to shortly after the uh, 
Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in 1979, uh, we saw a lot of activity pop up here in the state of Arizona, particularly down in the Tucson area, around the Islamic Center Tucson, the University of Arizona. And individuals that went on to become ranking members of what we now know as Al-Qaeda attended the University of Arizona. And very few people uh, realize that. Very, it's, it's not really documented in, in, in a public uh, form uh, anywhere, really. And, and uh, I, I mean, I can go on with names and list the type of names there. Most people won't even recognize those names except those that are in the intelligence business and know Al-Qaeda. But uh, I'll give you one name, for instance, a guy by the name of Wadia Al-Hajj. He's a former Roman Catholic who converted to Sunni Islam, and he was he was an, uh, a Tucson resident, and he's spending uh, multiple life sentences or a life sentence in the supermax in Colorado for his role in the bombings of the embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, Tanzania in 1998. He was a, se- a senior bin Laden lieutenant at the time, and he was a, a state of Arizona resident. So that's just to mention one, and I can go on with name after name after name uh, for your listeners, but most of them wouldn't recognize those names. So, uh, you know, you wouldn't think of it in Arizona, but when we go back in time when we were looking at things, it basically boiled now to nothing more than students that had been here in the past, like the state of Arizona. Uh, the, some of the subject matters that the universities in the state of Arizona offer are very critical and essential to people living in the Middle Eastern area. They study, you know, There's a lot of geology type courses offered here, water courses offered here. Uh, very important stuff for people that come from the desert desert regions. And and so that's where it started. And then as they got here, people continued to come. And at the time when they were coming here, uh, spe- specifically at the University of Arizona, our presence was pretty, and when I mean our presence, the FBI's presence was pretty uh, pretty low in that area. So they were able to get away with and, and, and a lot of things that were underneath our radar screen. We didn't see them because we really weren't paying attention to that type of stuff. If you remember in the years before 9-11, one of our critical roles uh, back in the uh, early 80s, throughout the 90s, and up to basically till 9-11, was especially in border states like Arizona, uh, drug interdiction, drug enforcement was was very big for us. Uh, public corruption with you know uh, crooked border guards, you know um, uh, customs officials, and just the the cocaine traffic flow across the Arizona Mexico border was tremendous. And and a lot of our resources were dedicated in that area to to looking at that. So uh, these guys, uh, when I say these guys, these uh, people that went on to become Al Qaeda types, were not even really getting looked at at all. Now, that's really interesting. And I think it's important for those non-FBI listeners to understand that in every one of our 56 offices, there are agents assigned to investigate all of the FBI's programs and violations, even if that office doesn't have a lot. There's still somebody that is responsible if a case comes up to, to look at that type of a case. So, even though the office was, uh, Phoenix was concentrating on drugs, there were still people assigned to, like you, assigned yes. to working terrorism cases. Yeah, you bring up an excellent point, Jerry. And let me let me highlight for your audience this. The people that, at, during that time period that I'm talking about, I'm talking about late 80s, early 90s, there was basically two people that were responsible for covering this subject in the entire state of Arizona, uh, an individual in Tucson and an individual in Phoenix. Uh, I was the individual in Phoenix, and we had another agent, Paul Zapaniak, who's retired now, was responsible for the southern portion of Arizona. So contrast that to where we are now, where the primary focus of the FBI is looking for the likes of which carried out the horrible attacks on September 11th, and then I mean, two people 
I mean, uh, when I look back and I see what has been, what has occurred here in Arizona and, and, and the agents that are working international terrorism now compared to those days, it's, it's remarkable. Mm. Times have definitely changed. Yes. But what I'd like to talk to your audience about today is uh, I'm the author of what went on to become known as the Phoenix Memo, and uh, that got a lot of um, attention in in the years after the September 11, 2001 attacks. And I'd like to also talk about a a case called the uh, Phoenix uh, Mountain Preserve arson uh, case and how the two collided and how I was in the middle of it and and, and what happened to the investigations. So with your permission, I'd like to get into the, uh, how, how the uh, Phoenix memo uh, became. Yes, please do. Okay. Well, I started this case like all, in my opinion, in my 30 years with the FBI, most of my best cases or the cases that I had the most, um, fun working or, or challenging cases working began with information provided to me by a confidential human source, uh, an informant. And this informant was a former member member of a terrorist organization called the Popular Front for Liberation of Palestine General Command uh, under the leadership of uh, Ahmed Jabril at the time. Uh, it was headquartered in, in Damascus, Syria. And, and this informant of mine was a defector from that organization. Uh, over the course of my career, I ran him for approximately 24 years. But he came to me in 1999 and he told me, he said, look at he says, there's these two individuals that are going to Embry-Riddle Aeronautical University in Prescott, Arizona. And for your audience who doesn't, or isn't familiar with Embry-Riddle University, I liken it to like the Ivy League of civil aviation in the United States. Um, it's a very prestigious university. The main campus of that university is located in Daytona Beach, Florida, with the only satellite, uh, other satellite uh, campus in the United States being in Prescott. The majority of students that attend uh, Embry-Riddle University attend the Daytona campus to include a lot of foreign students, people that are in the United States on an F-1 student visa. But in this case, and there's thousands of kids that go to school in in Daytona, Florida. The one in Prescott, Arizona has approximately 3,000 uh, or at the time of, that I'm talking about, 1999, had approximately uh, 2,600 students with a, a small minority of, of F1 student uh, visas, foreign students that were attending the school. So my informant, who was the former terrorist himself, uh, said, hey, look, there's two guys that are attending this school up in Prescott that you should be interested in. Um, they are forming an organization called the Al-Muhajirun, which in English translates into the immigrant, translates to mean the immigrant that are, are attending every riddle. And he says, this organization, the Al-Mahajarun, is a radical organization that was originally founded in Saudi Arabia. He says, these guys declared themselves to be the ears, the eyes, the mouthpiece of Osama bin Laden of Al-Qaeda. So he identified these two guys. The first guy identified was a Lebanese national by the name of Zachariah Subra. Uh, Subra was attending in the United States, like I said, on an F-1 student visa, and he was studying uh, aviation security at the university. Now, I can assure you, you know, a degree from Embry-Riddle University in aviation security would most likely land him a very good job at any international airport in the world. It'd be like getting a degree uh, from like a Harvard or Princeton or an Ivy League school in any other discipline. You know, a, a degree from Ember Real University is held in high esteem by people in the aviation world. And and Subra was the one that was actually standing up this this organization that we had never seen in, in Arizona before called the Al-Mahajar. Well, Subra's buddy at that time was a, a Saudi national, Saudi Arabian national, by the name of Ghassan El-Sharbi. And I want your audience to remember this name because this will prove this this will this will be significant later on towards the end of my presentation. Uh, Mr. Repeat El- that. Yeah, repeat yeah, his I, name again. I, I, 
yeah, his name is Ghassan Al-Sharbi, S-H-A-R-B-I. And like I said to your audience, I want them to remember this name because it's significant towards the end of my presentation. Uh, he was a roommate of Zechariah Subra, uh, and he was also in the United States on an F-1 student visa. And he was studying electrical engineering at the time uh, as it related to aviation and uh whatnot at Embry-Riddle University. So here we, and, and he was also an adherent to this uh, organization called the Al-Mahajran, which is, a, which, which is at the time a very radical uh, organization that openly, and again, this is all pre-9-11, so they weren't hiding behind, you know, vocalizing their support for Al-Qaeda or, or uh, Osama bin Laden. So these two guys were living together in, in Prescott in a motor lodge motel. They were printing and distributing propaganda material at, at Phoenix area mosques. Uh, so Prescott is, if, if for those of you in your audience who aren't familiar with Arizona, Prescott is approximately 150 miles due north of Phoenix, Arizona. And you have to get on an interstate highway uh, from Prescott to travel to Phoenix. And it's, a, it's approximately an hour and 50 minute drive from Prescott to Phoenix. These two guys that I named earlier would uh, sometimes a couple times a week drive from Prescott to the Phoenix metropolitan area, Phoenix and Tempe, Arizona, uh, where there's another large mosque. And they would hand out their El Mahajarun propaganda. And they were trying to recruit anybody, actually. It didn't have to be youth, but they were targeting the youth to join their organization up in Prescott, Arizona. We found that, uh, I found that, my informant that first reported it to me. You know, he didn't. He didn't live in Prescott. He lived in Phoenix, and he would attend the mosque in Phoenix, Arizona. And he would see them hand out this material, and 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 spit, spit out their vitriol against the United States, against Israel, and and encouraging uh, uh, members of our Muslim community to join their organization. So we found that that be quite quite interesting. A little bit of history on the Al Muhajirun was it was founded in 1983 by an individual by the name of Omar Bakri Muhammad, who was a Saudi Arabian. This organization was so radical, even to the Saudi government, that they kicked them out of the Saudi, uh, kicked them out of Saudi Arabia. They were outlawed by Saudi Arabia in 1986, and they relocated from Saudi Arabia to uh, England. You know where they set up shop in England and and started uh, started propagating their support for bin Laden and started spewing their vitriol against Israel in the, in the West there. You know, they would actually issue, fat, they issued one fatwa that I found very interesting after I started looking into them from overseas where they said they were calling for their followers to, you know, attack uh, the U.S., attack the West, to hit their airports, hit their financial institutions, and hit their military. So they were openly calling for their followers to do that type of stuff. And I, I found it very eerie after the attacks of 9-11 uh, when, when I saw, you know, issued years ahead of time that this particular guy in England was calling for his followers to hit airports, you know, airplanes, you know, stuff like that. So, uh, and again, he openly called themselves, quote unquote, the eyes, ears, and mouthpiece of Osama bin Laden and Al-Qaeda. And, and, you know, again, you know, a lot, you know, most people now in the post 9-11 world have an understanding of, of the militant ideology of Al-Qaeda. Uh, but what I want the audience to take away from the, the Al-Mahajirun uh, story is this. I mean, even the Saudi Arabian government, who it's been demonstrated for years, has supported a lot of these type of organizations, you know, with finances or with, uh, you know, just ideological support. Uh, 
thought that this particular organization was was bad enough that they outlawed them in 1986 and forced them to move to England. After the attacks on 9-11, and this is is where, when the British outlawed their organization in, in, in the UK, the United Kingdom, they held a conference in 2002 in England. They were getting ready to hold a conference called the Magnificent 19. And what it was, it was a tribute to the 19, 9-11 hijackers who, who killed themselves in, 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 the, um, in, in the mass murder of Americans on September 11, 2001. This is the type of mindset it is. I want your audience to really get that into their, you know, grasp that and hold on to it. They, these people were so bold that they were having a celebration of life, if you will, for the for the 19 people who committed that horrible attack on September 11th upon our country. So that's the type of mindset these people were. So and, and the Brits outlawed them there. But like I said, these the, the two individuals in Prescott were living in this place called the Delview uh, Motor Inn in Prescott, Arizona. And for your audience who isn't familiar with with, with Arizona. The area of Prescott where this motor lodge was located in was, it's very, uh, very rustic. It's like truly the Wild West. You're out in the middle of nowhere. You're north of the city of Prescott on old Highway 89, north of the old Veterans Administration Hospital up there. And and the motor lodge was historically used or traditionally used as a, a lodging for antelope hunters. I mean, you know, it's like, you know, these are located on the plains of northern Arizona. And it's like truly, I call it uh, Cowboyville. I mean, so when I first saw these guys, and identified these guys, Subra and Al Sharby, you know, living in this place, I thought to myself, that, that would have been the last place I would have suspected finding them. And, you know, in the post 9-11 world, when I was still with the Bureau, I would give conferences and, and lectures to local law enforcement, you know, our partners, our sisters and brothers in, in law enforcement, local and state law enforcement. I would say, look, it, it doesn't matter where you're assigned. I mean, anywhere in the country, it doesn't, you don't have to be, this place, this stuff doesn't show up in New York City, Philadelphia, Detroit, LA, Chicago, you know, it can show up right here in Arizona and it can show up in a cowboy type environment, you know, and, you know, and I don't know if this was done by design by the enemy, you know, where they didn't think we had much of a presence and we wouldn't be looking for them there. But I, uh, but I tell the local sheriffs that are out in rustic America, anywhere, anywhere around the country, that's very important to pay attention to your environment. When you go to a radio call, you may be going to a domestic violence call, maybe you're going to a medical emergency call to pay attention to what's around you inside that residence. Something, you know, as, as a former street cop myself, you know, I wouldn't, I was never trained to be looking, you know, at, at pictures on somebody's house when I was in their house. You know, I, I'd be looking for weapons and things that could hurt me. But in this instance, and you will see that just by having some knowledge of what was hanging on the, these people's walls, you know, I could tell, you know, when I got in there that this, these guys were true believers of, of, of real hardcore Islamic extremist cause. So they were living in this place and they were prop, they were, they were manufacturing and printing up propaganda that they were handing out to not only students at every rural university, but to Muslims located at the Islamic Community Center in Phoenix and the Islamic Center in Tempe. The Islamic Center in Tempe, Arizona is located right off the main campuses of Arizona State University, one of the largest universities in the country. It's a small city in and of itself, and thousands and thousands of people attend that school, and thousands and thousands of foreign students uh, attend Arizona State University. And a lot of them come from the Gulf region, Saudi Arabia, you know, Oman, Yemen, all the countries you can think of from the Gulf area. And so these guys were specifically targeting 
Supra and Al-Sharbi specifically targeting, you know, these foreign Muslim students from the Gulf that were attending the Islamic Center Tempe for recruitment into their organization, which I believe this organization, the Al-Mahajran, was also a vehicle that was being used uh, to spot, assess, and to recruit individuals to go on to terrorist training camps in Afghanistan and Pakistan, you know, in, in the years before 9-11 and then even after 9-11. And this was information that you were receiving from your informant. Yes, yes. And that's what I that's what I want to stress. If, if there's any brand new agents out there listening to this or agents in training, that you really need to pay attention and, and work on developing a good source base, no matter what kind of violation you're working on. We're, obviously, we're talking about terrorism. But the same it holds true in, in, in general criminal investigations. I mean, you have to recruit people and you have to get people on board, Team USA, Team FBI, if you will, that are going to know the targets that you're chasing. So whether it be drugs, whether it be violent crime, major offender stuff, you know, organized crime, uh, uh, outlaw motorcycle gangs, whatever, white collar crime, you, you know, you, you have to be able to talk to people. You know, you have to be able to sit down, talk to them. But more importantly, you have to listen to people. You have to be an active listener. Some I, I used to get aggravated sometimes when I'd see some agents and they just like to hear themselves talk. And you, you, you want to kick them under the table and say, hey, I can hear you talk all day long. I want to hear this person that we're talking to. I want to hear what they have to say because that's the these are people that are going to lead me to the bad guys. You know, I want to hear the person that we're talking to speak. And you, and, and you have to be an active listener. So this guy, the source that originally gave me this information, I don't know if you remember, Jerry, the old E.F. Hutton commercials, you know, when E.F. Hutton speaks, you know, everybody listens. Yeah, you know? I'm, I'm old. I remember <laughs> yeah, yeah, it. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. There you go. And so that I, I looked at this particular source as like my E.F. My e. Hutton. And, and like when he spoke, I listened to it. And, and you know, this individual, he was a, uh, he was grateful to be in America. And he had had enough of this type of lifestyle when he was living in Syria and he was living in Lebanon. And he just wanted to live in peace. And, you know, he realized America was, was the land of opportunity where he could believe what he wanted to believe as long as he didn't break the laws and, and he could, he could live a good and virtuous life in America. And he was just tired of living that way. And when he saw it, he thought it was like following here to the United States. When he saw it here in the United States, he spoke out, he saw something and he said something like the old uh, public announcement statements go today. If you see something, say something. And, and he did, and he was right. This, so we're talking now, we're moving in from 1999. So now we're getting into the like, early 2000, you know, uh, late 1999. There was another situation that took place in Arizona and it involved an American Air, uh, American West airline flight. America West is defunct now. They're no longer flying, but, but they merged. I forget. I think they merged with U.S. Airways. But 1999, a flight originating from Phoenix, Arizona to uh, Washington, D.C. was... Um, there were two Saudi Arabian students on board. Both of them were PhD candidates. One was a PhD candidate that was attending Arizona State University, and another one who was attending the University of Arizona. You know, they're PhD. They're they're going for their PhD, so they're intelligent individuals. So while on this flight from Phoenix to Washington D.C., these guys started asking flight attendants very strange questions about the aircraft. They wanted to know about the fuel capacity of the aircraft. They wanted to know about all sorts of like technical things about the airplane that the flight attendants thought odd. But the oddest thing that these guys did was they attempted to get up on the airplane, or they did get up on the airplane. They walked to the cockpit area of the airplane, and they tested the cockpit door. 
and they wanted to see, and when they were confronted and challenged by the flight crew, they said, oh, we thought that this was the bathroom. Now, I got to ask you this, and your audience this, how many of us have been on an airplane where we saw the toilet of a major airliner right there? It's off the side of the aircraft. I, you I mean, can't my, miss it. Yeah, you can't miss it. So make a long story short, uh, these guys were acting, that was the, the straw that broke the camel's back, so to speak. And the flight attendant radioed to the cockpit and said, look, we're not comfortable with these guys in the plane. Let's put down. So they put down in Columbus, Ohio. And these two individuals in question, a guy by the name of Muhammad, Muhammad al-Kudahin and a guy by the name of Hamdan al-Shalawi were detained by Columbus, Ohio Police Department and were interviewed by the Columbus, Ohio Police Department and the FBI. The FBI maintains offices in most of the international airports in the country. For instance, it's just like this and other crimes that take place on board an aircraft. So these guys were interviewed at length and they immediately went on the offensive and they were claiming racial profiling and they were saying that, you know, they were, they were trying to shame law enforcement into not doing anything with them. And again, in the pre-9-11 world, you know, other decisions were made during that time uh, that, you know, in hindsight, probably people wish they hadn't made. But it was like, oh, man, we don't want to we don't want to offend any country here. We don't want to offend these gentlemen. So they got them on board the plane as fast as they could, got them out of there. And what these two individuals did would they were greeted by Saudi Arabian government officials uh, that were assigned to the embassy in Saudi Arabia. And they had a press conference in front of the Capitol steps of the U.S. Capitol. And basically, were alleging that the FBI and the Columbus, Ohio Police Department were racially profiling these guys. And I have testified before the 9-11 Commission and in the Joint Intelligence Committee in Congress that we believe, after 9-11, we believe that this was probably most likely an intelligence collecting mission by these guys to be used by Al-Qaeda in their planning for the 9-11 attacks. And the reason why I say that is one of these guys, uh, Hamdan al-Shalawi, we found his information after he left the United States to go back home. We found his information and stuff at a terrorism training camp in Afghanistan after the war took place. So he was he was affiliated with Al Qaeda, and he had received explosives training by Al Qaeda. So when was the, when was the date of this again? The flight was in 1999, okay. and, and this incident took place in 1999. So this is all like a couple of years, just a couple of years before the 9-11 attacks. And, and, and what's interesting about this, too, is when we were looking at the, the two individuals in Prescott, Arizona, we found they were using, Zachariah uh, Subra and Ghassan al-Sharbi were utilizing Mr. al-Shalawi's vehicle, a vehicle registered to Mr. Al-Shalawi is their vehicle to get around the state of Arizona. So you can see how the plot's thickening here. You know, you, you got this guy that's gone this, what I will call casing operation in preparation for 9-11. You got that guy, you know, who's making the big grandstand speech in front of the Capitol saying that the U.S. government's racially profiling and religiously profiling these guys and so on and so forth. You got that guy loaning the vehicle to the two guys that were attending Embry University, who were found in the organization, the Mahajarun in the state of Arizona, and re, you know who were claiming to be the ears, the mouthpiece, and voice of uh, of Osama bin Laden and Al Qaeda, they're using this Al Shalawi's car. So you can see you know, as investigators, you know, looking at this, you know, I'm starting to see the beginning of what I would call, you know, identify as a cell of something that's very of a great interest to us. I so, have to ask a question. Yes. When they went to juggle the handle of the cockpit door, mm -hmm. were they able to open it? Was it locked? No, no, it was locked. It was it was it was locked, and they weren't able to open it. They were definitely trying to 
gain access or to see if they could gain access. I do not believe that they were going to do anything on that day. You know, I do believe, though, that that was going to be intelligence that was going to be given to somebody else and say, hey, look, at this is what we've done. Now, my question, and we weren't able to see, I, I, it might exist, Terry, but, I, you know, I asked at the time, and I don't know, uh, I got negative responses, but I remember we had asked other field offices at the time, we put memorandums out there, I forget what we called them then, Airtels or whatever back then, and we said, hey, look at this is what we saw in this instance. Does any other offices uh, have any information from their airport liaison people or their airport duty agents? You know, where where does this take place in other cities? And, and at that time, we got a negative response. We didn't get any response back. But I, I would suspect, you know, as a trained investigator in this field, that that this wasn't probably the only flight that this took place on in the years and days leading up to 9-11. They were probably collecting intelligence information all over the place. And, you know, thank goodness this flight crew, uh, in my opinion, did the right thing and reported it and, and we were able to address it. But so now let's, let's think where we're at now in, in the timeline, the continuing here. So now we're talking 1999. So what, what's happening in, in, in the United States at this time period? We are now going to be changing centuries, right? We're, we're getting ready for Y2K. The clocks are going to change 2000. And I know a lot of people probably forget about this now, but Back in those days, Jerry, you probably remember this. Yeah, I'm old. I remember. Yeah, yeah, that's it. (laughs) This was a big deal for us, you know, because people in government really thought that if things could go haywire at 2000 with the computer information age and people were concerned about, you know, uh, power grids going out, banking, banking. it was was chaotic. So, uh, you know, the U.S. government stood up command posts, the whole nine yards in preparation for this. So at this time... I was ordered by headquarters to go interview Mr. El Sharby and Mr. Uh, Subra, you know, and I said, look, it's a little too early yet. We're still just, you know, I haven't really had an opportunity even to get surveillance coverage on them because again, back in this time, we had other responsibilities and surveillance assets were precious, especially here in the Southwest border. Most of them were being consumed with drug work. I, I couldn't get surveillance assets on these guys. So myself and another agent from the squad, we muster up some other guys and gals, and we go out and try to do our own surveillance on these. You know, and we're pretty good. I mean, you're a trained FBI agent. I'm a trained FBI agent. We do what we can do. But there's nothing like having a dedicated surveillance team that does this day in and day out to get the job done right. You know, so we did what we could do at the time and, and, and watched what we could watch. But when we – so. I wasn't prepared to go do a really in-depth interview with these guys yet because to do so would pretty much dime out my informant, you know, and it was very, very risky. So we attributed when we, you know, orders are orders, we had to go do the interview and uh, subjects all over the country at this time were being interviewed in preparation for, you know, clock turning uh, 12 at the end of 1999. And we did an interview and we said, we just basically came up with a roof saying, we, hey, we were interviewing all foreign students and stuff like this uh, because of the Y2K thing. I know it sounds ridiculous now with the Y2K, but it was real. And as we went in here, and this is where your training experience comes into play. And I, you know, again, if any young agents are out there listening, if you, whatever violations you're assigned, you got to take it seriously. And, you, you know, Uncle Sam's not going to teach you everything about it. So you're going to have to do some independent reading. You're going to have to do some self-education on your own to learn about your target. You know, and in the pre-9-11 world, the FBI really didn't spend a lot of time training its agents. Sure, we had conferences and we had meetings and whatnot. But if you really wanted to learn about this stuff that you were assigned, more often than not, you would have to read on your own 
to get an understanding of this ideology, get an understanding of the culture, get an understanding of their religious convictions and beliefs, and go from there. So when myself and my partner went to the uh, went to the, this apartment, this Dell Motor Lodge, knocked on the door, uh, they invited us in, and on the wall of their apartment, I could see, and again, based on my training and experience and my own education, a picture of an individual on a poster on one of the walls of their apartment. And I, I readily recognize this individual as being an individual known as Ibn Khattab. He's a Saudi Arabian guy, but he was a head of the Islamic army of the Caucasus at the time that adhered to Al-Qaeda type of radical uh, Islamic philosophy. Uh, you know, and, and again, when I say Islamic philosophy, I certainly am not implying that Muslims are terrorists. I'm not. It's just a small faction within their religion that that is causing the larger, the good, God-loving people problems. And and I, I could I recognize this guy as being that Ibn Khattab guy, very dangerous man, who was conducting a jihad in Chechnya at the time, and at the time was was fighting. They were fighting Russian troops in the name of of their their god. And he was also a supporter of Bin Laden. So we saw we saw that picture, and then underneath the picture of Ibn Khattab, we saw pictures of wounded warriors. Wounded Mujahideen, religious warriors, and uh, you know, and and there was, it was so it was like a little shrine set up in front of these pictures, where I could tell that the occupants of this apartment, Mr. Suber, Mr. Al Sharby, were kind of paying respect to these individuals, uh, you know, that they had taped to the wall. So we started. I started the interview with them. Uh, Mr. Al Sharby was very quiet during the interview. On the other hand, Mr. Suber was a loudmouth. He was getting right into our grill. And he was trying to push all our buttons. Uh, he was he was t- saying, you know, because I, I recognized the uh, photo of Ibn Khattab. And he says, yes, he's a great Muslim, uh, as is brother Osama bin Laden. They're great Muslim uh, warriors, good people. And he looked at me and he, and he said, uh, without batting an eye, he just, he, he considered myself, the other agent, the FBI in general, the U.S. military and the U.S. government. And he went in that order as, quote unquote, legitimate military targets of Islam. Wow. So, Way to yes. keep a low profile. Exactly right. You know, and, and, and you know, I, you know, as, a, as, a, as an investigator, you, you know, you, it really incenses you because most, most foreign students that I had contacted prior to this in my FBI career, they, they were always uh, kind of intimidated by us and they were afraid of us because especially people from that area of the world, the Middle East, because their intelligence services, their internal intelligence services, security forces are a little bit more hands-on with people. You know, uh, they don't have like the U.S. Constitution, you know, and all this other stuff that, that prevent them from doing different things, bad things to, to people. And most students would greet me in in the past, like, and we say, no, we're not, we're not like the Mukhabarat from your country. We're just here to talk to you. We're not going to rough you up. We're not going to be bad to you. We just want to learn some things from you. But these guys were right in your grill and very aggressive. You know, and, and as an investigator, I was just, oh, I said, please just chest pump me. Do something where I might be able to arrest you for assault on a federal officer or something. But they were smart enough not to go that far. You know, and uh, but he made a statement. He made it clear that he considered me, the United States government, the FBI, uh, U.S. military, uh, as legitimate military targets of Islam. Uh, again, right in your face. And in hindsight, when I, you know, when I conclude this, I'll, I'll tell you, he probably Al-Qaeda hated him after that, after they became aware of the fact that this is what he did, because he really, now it's game on. We we had source information saying that these guys were bad. Now, 
he's demonstrated it to us, to our face. You know, he has no fear, no intimidation, no respect for our authority, no respect for our country. And, and we said, this is the real deal. So this is what, this is what I'm confronted with at this time. So we're talking in 2000, this is where we're at. And right at the time, right at the time we're doing these interviews, we start to get a series of arsons taking place in the Phoenix metropolitan area. And, you know, we had, and they, what these, these are, what the arsonist was doing was he was targeting houses that were under construction, brand new builds near located uh, abutting mountain preserves, you know, uh, uh, either state park stuff or county park stuff or city mountain preserves. And he was trying to give law enforcement the impression that he was some kind of eco-terrorist and he would taunt law enforcement by contacting a local media branch out here, or, you know, he would leave like notes, you know, somewhere in the area. And he was like taunting us, making us believe that he was an eco-terrorist. So immediately, you know, the police were thinking, hey, this might be bigger than what we can handle here, because if this guy is in fact with a terrorist organization, you know, an earth first type group or some, some similar, you know, some similar group like that, you know, we're going to need uh, maybe the FBI's help on this. And so they approached the FBI and our command at the time agreed to help them. And I can understand why there was millions of dollars worth of damage. And fortunately, nobody had been hurt up to the point, but always, there's always that possibility that somebody could get killed during one of these, these, these burns. You so know, can I, can I mm-hmm. interrupt you for a second? Sure. Because I think people listening, it would be nice to give them an understanding of why a local law enforcement would need the FBI's help. What was it that you were going to be able to provide that the local agency, you know, didn't have or, you know, needed from the FBI? As you know, Jerry, we have tremendous resources with respect to like our behavioral analytical units and stuff, you know, agents that are, you know, that are trained to put together a a, a psychological or psychiatric profile on somebody. Uh, We have surveillance assets. I mean, uh, we have money, resources that local law enforcement might not have to keep airplanes, surveillance airplanes in the air or or things along those lines. We have technical assets uh, with our tech agent core that might be able to do some things that, local law enforcement doesn't have the equipment or the training to do. And we have uh, resources, investigative resources that can help. And we have databases, we have computers that can help organize a major investigation to keep track of uh, interviews, uh, evidence, pieces of evidence collected at crime scenes, and so on and so forth. So that's why they would come to us. And they did in this case. And we agreed to help them out. What the subject in this case, his name is Mark Warren Sands was signing some of his documents with and teasing the media with is he was calling himself a coalition to save the preserves. When the initial investigators were looking at this, they said coalition to, to save the preserves. They're automatically assuming that this is some kind of organized effort to, you know, stop these buildings from going up near the preserve. So they were looking at it more than an individual. And here's the irony of ironies. And this is what I stress to those that are in management positions here. I was taken off. I was approached because I was an older investigator at the time, not senior. I mean, I only had like maybe 12 years at the time that I was doing that. But I know that it's not a lot now when you look at it after serving 30 years. But I was like an older guy at the time and had experience working some, some other cases in the past. So I was ordered by my supervisor to be involved in that case and to put in a pending inactive status the case of the guys that told me they thought we were legitimate military targets for Islam. 
And again, this was the pre-9-11 world. I mean, the, the thought process by the command at the time was that, hey, these guys are just propagating material out there, putting material out there. And yeah, they said some nasty words to you guys, but they haven't done anything. Meanwhile, we've got houses that are burning down. We've got people that could potentially get injured or killed during these fires. We need your help with this. So for your audience that doesn't know what pending and active is, that means the case is still going to be in an open status, but we're not going to actively conduct any investigation on it. All right. So basically, it's a file sitting on a shelf somewhere, and no agent is looking at this. So these guys that the guys that were attending every Riddle University and who told me and the other agent that they considered us legitimate military targets for Islam and, you know, that they thought bin Laden was a, a, a great brother and all this other stuff uh, were left unattended for over a year's period of time. So we don't know what took place during that that, that time period with these guys. You know, I, I would occasionally touch bases with my source and he would give me some updated information, but he wasn't really in with that group. He was older at the time. These guys were really targeting, you know, people in their 20s, you know, maybe late teens, early 20s. And my guy at the time was older and they really didn't want, they didn't see much usefulness in him because he wasn't, he, although being a Muslim, he wasn't a really religious Muslim in their eyes. You know, he's a, here's a guy that you would like to go out and maybe grab a beer every once in a while, you know, and uh, they really wouldn't want anything to do with it. So for a year, and this is what I want to emphasize, maybe a little over a year, I wasn't looking at these guys that in hindsight now that we should have been looking at those guys because because these were real Al-Qaeda guys, right? So we're, we're looking at this uh, arson guy, getting back to the arsonist, and we put, we give the information that we had collected up to that time to uh, uh, the investigative team. It was a big investigative effort. And I'm telling you, I was very proud of my involvement in the arson case. In hindsight, it makes me sick for reasons that I'll get into later. But I, I, I'm not mocking the seriousness of the arson case at all. It was a very uh, important case to be worked and, and whatnot. And the team that was assembled to work that case did a phenomenal investigative job. And I, I think it was a, a, a textbook uh, uh, example of how uh, the FBI and, and a major police department, in this case, the Phoenix Police Department and the Phoenix Fire Department, worked as one to bring a man to justice. And we put him away for like 25 years. But before we found out who he was, you know, using the FBI resources, we had requested the behavioral science unit. Uh, uh, for those of you in the audience that don't know, it's like the criminal mind show that these are the guys and gals that profile criminals that we're interested in trying to identify, you know, what makes a person do a particular crime, you know, what based upon the evidence that we collected to date that we can share with them, what type of profile would you put together the individual that we should be looking for? So the behavioral science unit did a phenomenal job on this case. And when we got the results back, Jerry, they did everything but give me the guy's name, hair color, and whether or not he was had blue eyes, dark eyes, or green eyes. I mean, they said that this guy was going to have some kind of sexual deviant behavior, you know, that he, he was not a member of a terrorist organization. And I think this is very important, very critical. Now, how would they know that? You're going to have to tell yeah, us that. Well, 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 it does well, sound like eco-terrorism. Yeah, it, it did. And, and they, they had given some, some, and they use psychological words and all this other stuff that I, I'm not a psychologist. I, I can't remember the words they use. But they said, based on their previous experiences of looking at cases like this, you know, that this is what they have found that it's it's people that are based upon some of his rantings in the media and some of the stuff that he would write uh i don't know how they came to, to you know like again not being a psychologist or a psychiatrist i don't know how they came to this conclusion but but they did and they, and they felt strong enough to to 
give RSAC and our investigative team their this assessment. And I tell you, we didn't listen to it. We did not listen to it. And because the, the majority of people at the time were saying, no, this has got to be a, a, an eco-terrorist group. Because at this time period, and I forget where else in the country, there weren't necessarily arsons, but there were other eco-terrorist groups that were doing things around the country during this time period. And again, that not being my forte, you know, domestic terrorism side of the house, I'm not familiar with the names of all those groups. My area of expertise for my entire bureau career was dealing with the Sunni Islamic extremists, the Al-Qaeda's, the Al-Gama Islamias, the Hamas, those organizations, not, you know, the Earth Firsters or, or those type of Groups. I'm not very well versed in that. And that was another argument I had made to my supervisor at the time. I said, sir, listen, I, I said, I appreciate the confidence you have in me to, to help with this investigation, but I don't know anything about these organizations. I mean, it's like, you know, you're, you're taking me, I'm, I'm going to have to learn and I have no aversion to learning. I mean, learning is, is always very, it's always a very good thing. You know, I felt like somebody that maybe you could bring somebody in from somewhere else in the country that has more of a knowledge of this type of these type of people and their mindsets, you know, than me, because I have none, but they didn't want to do that. And, and, and I was put on, I was put on the case and, you know, it's a good, good agent, as you well know, Jerry, you know, you do what the boss tells you to do, you know, so. For the needs of the Bureau. Exactly. For the needs of the Bureau. So went kicking and screaming a little bit, you know, and, uh, but I, but I helped out and, and we ultimately ended up solving the case through a great team effort. And, and, and I forget what the statistic was at the time, but I think, it, uh, and don't quote me on this, but it was very low. I want to say 4%, less than 4% of these type of cases that are committed with law enforcement actually makes an arrest on them. All right. And I don't know how they come to that 4% number, but I remember it was very low. So I remember the team, we were all celebrating when we arrested this guy. And uh, uh, that, that we, we actually accomplished something that not many law enforcement agencies or teams are able to do when, when, when we have these type of cases. And sure enough, when he was caught, and I won't bore your audience with how he was caught, we, we just had what, what we did. I'll, t- I'll tell you what the FBI did. Yeah, we're, we're not going to be bored. We, we okay. need to know. <laughs> okay. I'll tell you what the FBI did with the Phoenix Police Department, Phoenix Fire Department. We actually secured a piece of land on a border border preserve area, abutting a border preserve area. And we pretended like we were going to build a house on this piece of land. We dumped lumber on that land. We put up a big billboard, uh, you know, not a big billboard, but like a, uh, you know, on construction sites when you see, you know, hey, this is what's coming soon type of picture, you know, type of thing. You know, this is what we put on there. And on that billboard, on that sign of what we were going to build, we, we had an architect draw us what uh, the most gorgeous house that you can think of beautiful, but gaudy, you know, and, and we knew that this was going to like maybe trigger something in our suspect's mind, whoever he or she was at the time. We didn't know who it was. And we were going to expect that they were going to show up at that sign and look at it. All right. And in the sign, we had microscopic cameras and uh, microphones to identify who it is that would stop by and watch the, look at the photo or look at what was going to be built there. And that's how we identified our suspect. Mark Sands at the time. We identified it because we caught him going up to that sign and tagging the sign with graffiti. And we were able to identify him after we got his picture and we canvassed the neighborhood and we were watching and we identified him. It was good good gumshoe detective work and surveillance work that located him. The graffiti sign. Oh, it was like, again, they're like, you know, something about the Gaudi houses and, you know, coalition to save the preserve type stuff, you know, just a, just a bunch of the nonsense. 
But when he so, got, so basically, he when he tagged the, the sign, he basically identified himself. I'm yep. I'm the one. I'm the yeah, pretty I'm, much. I'm this organization. Yep, yep, pretty much. Cool. And you know, hey, you know, this is what we look for, right, Jerry? Is is investigators? You know, they're not all uh, they're not all that bright sometimes. You know, and uh, you know, he was very <laughs> he, he was very good, but we catch them when they make a mistake, right? Yep, yep. Yeah, and this is how they go down. So we identify him, and sure enough, we when we caught him, you know, it was Phoenix Police Patrol officers that caught him. Did a phenomenal job catching him at the scene. You know, he was in his underwear. I got called as well as a Phoenix Police Department detective, Bob Ragsdale, legend. The guy that was a legend in the Phoenix Police Department was homicide detective. Was here forever. Very well respected. So both him and I were on call. We were the ones that ended up taking him off of patrol when they took him down to Phoenix PD headquarters, and we conducted the interview of this guy with another large contingent of interviewers sitting in an adjoining room watching video feed of All our right, interview. you got to back up again. Why was he yeah. in his underwear? Well, this is where I'm getting at. Oh, okay. He, he, lived, he lived in the neighborhood where this house was going to be built, lived like a block or two away. And what we found out after we arrested this guy, and I, I could see when he was standing in the street, I could observe on the front of his uh, dark blue boxer shorts what appeared to be dried semen stains on his shorts. And I remember what the behavioral science report was saying about, hey, when you catch this guy, or, or not when you catch this guy, this guy is going to be a sexual deviant. You know, he's going to like to masturbate. He's going to like to do this. He's going to like to do that. And I, and I did think of that report. And I go, that's potential evidence right there. I said, you know, so when we, when we, get, you know, we put him in an orange jumpsuit, you know, we bagged and tagged that, that underwear for whatever future use for later on. We took him down to police headquarters where uh, Bob and I conducted an interview of him. And I'm telling you, he was one of the most interesting individuals I've ever interviewed in my life. I mean, he ran, and I have interviewed when I was a police officer and then as an FBI agent up to that point, I, literally hundreds of people. And, and, and he was he stands out and he will always stand out in my mind as being one of the most interesting guys I've ever inter interviewed because his emotions ran the gamut from childlike to almost feminine like to badass like and and then back run the whole circle and I'm and as I'm doing the interview with Bob and we take a break from here and then you know, I go is this guy doing this by design to make himself out to look like he's mentally ill or is is this what we're really dealing with is he really, uh, you know, psychotic? You know, what is this guy? You know, and we really didn't get much out of the interview. And the investigation continued uh, with other agents afterwards, and they were able to get him uh, to admit his involvement in things through another source that I had nothing to do with. It was other agents that had things to do with, and they got body recordings of him making some incriminating statements, and he ultimately got convicted and put away for like 25 years. And he recently got out. I'll talk to you about him towards the end, uh, what he's doing now. But but when we did get him, he was pretty much everything that the behavioral science unit said he was. When we executed search warrants in his home, we found all sorts of pornography. You know, his wife admitted to us that he was addicted to porn. You know, his his uh, now adult girl has admitted recently to the Arizona Republic, Jen uh, Feifeld, the reporter, that her dad was a sex addict. You know, he needed help, you know, and all that stuff at the time. And he was everything that our behavioral science people thought he was. And, 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 and that's where my respect even went even higher for those men and women in our behavioral science unit because they called it. And And you know what? Again, I don't want to, I don't want to, you know, hindsight's always twenty twenty, and I'm not being critical when I say this, but shame on us for not listening to our own people. You know, our own experts said, this is not eco-terrorism. This is this. 
And we chose to ignore that advice at the time. And, and, and the reason why that pains me right now is when I get on with my story, you'll see why it pains me. Because it took my eyes off some guys that were involved with people that did that horrible thing on September 11th, committed that horrible crime and that act of terrorism on September 11, 2001. So moving along. What are, I, do you, are you saying that you may have been able to solve that arson sooner and return to the case? That's a million dollar question. I don't know if we would have been able to do it any sooner, but I think we might have been able to, how do I want to put it? Did away with a lot of uh, confusion and trying to build things up into something that they weren't, you know, dedicate some resources on it. But, but my point being, don't take your international terrorism agents off of international terrorism to work this arson case, all right? We got to be able to chew gum and walk at the same time. And my message to any managers that might be listening to this is listen to your experts in your respective fields. I mean, if you've got agents assigned to work international terrorism, this is where all the government's resources is, is educating me. And when you send me to in-services, when you send me to training, it's to learn about those guys, not about arsonists. And when, the, when your agents tell you, when I was me, I told my supervisor, and he's a great guy, and we're still the best of friends. I said, Billy, you're making a mistake, man. These guys are the real guys. I mean, I've been looking at this stuff for years. And I said, I've never seen a foreign student look me in the eye and say, I consider you a legitimate military target of Islam. He's not saying he doesn't like me. He's basically saying, I'm a target. He would like to kill me. (laughs) People like me and like our country. And as that is extremely significant, right? In our business, this is what we would call a quote unquote clue. You know, this is, this is real deal. You know, so I'm always very careful how I, I phrase this because I am not casting any type of dispersion on that arson case. It was a horrible set of crimes. Many people were financially, seriously financially hurt on this deal. People could have been killed on this deal. What I'm merely suggesting, Jerry, is that don't use your experts in other fields and, and have them not look at what they're trained to do onto something that they're not trained, to, you know, not trained to look at. I mean, I, I was afraid when I when I initially got signed assigned to the arson case. I, I said I'm going to be a liability here because first of all, I've never worked an arson case. Secondly, I don't know anything about these domestic terrorist groups. Right after the attacks on 9-11, and I'll talk to that about that in a minute, you know, we had guys and gals, you know, God bless them, that were assigned to work in international terrorism stuff, and, and they were, they're great agents. Every FBI agent can do, we can do miraculous things when we put our, put our heads to it. But the learning curve was huge, you know, so you have maybe agents that are coming in and never even talked to somebody from the Middle East that are used to talking to, like, let's say, uh, Hispanic or black gangbangers, you know, uh, that are that are on the street dealing dope, shooting it up. Very bad guys, and don't get me wrong. But now they're now we're asking them to do something that they have nothing, no background on. I was I was the lead case agent on you will after nine eleven uh, for the Phoenix response to it because as we go on in my presentation here, we had two terrorists living here. So getting back to the timeline here. So now we're talking. December 2000, I'm, 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 you know, uh, we have Hani Hanjour and Nawaf Al-Hazmi, two of the hijackers that were on American Airlines Flight 77 that went into the Pentagon on that fateful day, arrive in Arizona. So at the time period when I'm chasing, looking after this arsonist, we have two of our hijackers, one Hanjour being the pilot, Al-Hazmi being one of the muscle men on Flight 77, arrive in our area of operation, arrive right here in Phoenix, Arizona. So we're not watching the guys from Prescott 
were not watching the guys that were on the America West Airlines flight, who we subsequently found out had gone to Al-Qaeda terrorist training camp. You know, we're not watching these guys. So this is where I've done some real soul searching and, you know, I'm a Christian man, so I, I believe in things and, you know, I, I don't beat myself. I used to beat myself over the head with it all the time. What did we miss during this time period? You know, what did we miss? What could have we seen if I wasn't working this arson case and I was left to work these guys in Prescott and the guy that was the guys that were on the America West Airlines flight? Would I've identified the two hijackers that came into the area? Would they have met up with the individuals that we were already looking at who, when they came here, we weren't looking at anymore? And that's the million dollar question I'll have to the day I die. You know, could we have seen them? You know, and had we run into, had we been able to identify, Nawaf al-Hazmi, he had been watchlisted. He was one of the individuals that got away from the Central Intelligence Agency. He was part of a meeting in Malaysia, you know, before before uh, they arrived into the United States. We lost, U.S. intelligence lost him, but he was on our watch list. So had I been able to identify him and did some basic data checks that we do as part of a standard counterterrorism investigation, he would have came to my attention as being a watchlisted guy who was a member of al-Qaeda. You know, to answer your question earlier, that's the question that, that always haunts me. You know, I finally have come to the conclusion. I mean, I've been retired now two years. I mean, I do believe that God has a plan for everybody and has a reason for everything happening. So I, I, I'm not as rough on myself as I used to be on this, you know, because I, I, I would always ask myself, should I have protested more to my supervisors? Should I, have, you know, you know, not been a good team player, you know, and, and I've come to the conclusion, no, I, I did what I was told and I did it. I did it for the right reasons. And, you know, sometimes fate, you have no control over fate and, and, and things just happen. But, but during this time period, nobody was looking at these guys. I strongly believe, Jerry, that had we continued to focus in on the guys in Prescott, Arizona, and, I, and I've testified this to Congress and to the uh, Blue Ribbon and 9-11 Commission inquiry into the events of September 11th, I do believe that we would have been able to identify these two individuals because these guys in Prescott, they hung in those circles and they knew people in common with the two hijackers. And I, I will guarantee you that had we been surveilling them, we would have it would have been very likely, probably probable, that we would have been able to identify these guys. But what have, could have, should have, you know, that's that's hindsight. And uh, I know hindsight can always be twenty twenty. But but that's my reality, and that's what I that's what I believe. After the arrest of Mark Sands, you know, I tidied up my stuff on the arson case, passed off some stuff to some other people because you know we had our target, and he was in jail, and that was just administrative stuff that needed to be done in that arson case, and other agents were going to take care of that. Yeah, let me just stop you real uh -huh. quick again. I always try to make sure we we'll use this as a, a teaching opportunity, sure, a teaching sure. moment. And because the FBI came in to offer assistance, there was still no federal jurisdiction in this particular investigation. So even though agents continued working, I take it that everything as far as the next level with prosecution or whether he pled or whatever was all handled by the state. Correct. Yes. So after that got wrapped up, I went back to work these guys up in Prescott. And now, like I said, I'm over a year behind on what they're up to the whole nine yards. I'm, I'm, I'm really behind, you know, and I got to play catch up. So in, the, in, in reviewing the file and reviewing the work that I previously done on it before we put it into pending inactive status, you know, I started to notice other things in preparation to get going full board on, on my case again on these guys. And I was, I, was, I was coming up with other information 
from around the state where we had other instances of individuals that had that were like-minded as the two guys in Prescott that, you know, like-minded, I mean, in being in support of bin Laden, in support of the global jihad and, and that whole militant form of Islam. And I said, boy, and, and they were going to flight schools and they were also uh, studying in different areas of the state, uh, aviation related stuff, you know, and I'm going, this is, this is, uh, this is strange, you know, so I, I authored what has become known as the Phoenix Memo. And I, and I compiled the list of the cases that have come to my, uh, that came to my attention um, uh, after I got back to work and the guys in Prescott. And I said, look at this is this is just strange. I mean, it's an it's an anomaly, and we all know that, Jerry. You're looking at a case, and sometimes, you know, you don't see it immediately, and then all of a sudden, the light bulb goes off, and you go, "This is this is strange. This is there's a pattern developing here. There's something going on here." How many of these kids from the Middle East are, that are coming here that have this radical ideology? They're 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 spewing vitriol about America and Israel and all this other stuff, and they're studying civil aviation stuff. They're learning how to fly airplanes. They're learning how to fix airplanes. They're learning how to get security jobs at airports, you know, and, and stuff like that. I mean, th this looks like something, a trend developing. So I put together what has now become the Phoenix Memo. And I said, look at, I think, you know, bin Laden has got a cadre of individuals in the United States where he is, uh, he's, he's, he's possibly going to use to target U.S. civil aviation. You know, and I wasn't thinking at the time about planes being used as missiles, you know, to be, you know, you know, kamikaze type attacks. I was thinking more along like the old line stuff, you know, where, you know, we saw the Libyans blow up Pan Am 103, where they were going to plant the bomb in an airplane or something like that. I did not envision at that time that these planes would be used as missiles, even though we U.S. government had information, you know, going back to the mid 90s with the, with an operation called Boyjenka, where uh, Ramzi Yosef, the famed Ramzi Yosef terrorist who participated in blowing up the first World Trade Center uh, bombing back in 1993. You know, uh, him and his uncle, uh, college, Sheikh Mohammed, who we all know now was the mastermind of September 11th, you know, were planning on crashing a bunch of airliners into the California or the western uh, coast of the United States. You know, they were going to upwards of 13 aircraft to do this. So that information was out there. I was just not aware of that information at the time. And this was all, like I said, pre 9-11. And uh, the information sharing, let's say, or our communication systems weren't all the best. They were good, but they weren't what they are today. You know, I wasn't aware of that, you know, sitting here in the deserts of Phoenix, Arizona. So the U.S. government did have information before 9-11 that this is what the enemy had intended to do at least once. So it should come as no surprise that, you know, they didn't give up their desire to carry out such a horrific attack. So we put it out there and we floated out there on July 10th, 2001. So when we get to September, I'm, I'm arriving into the office and, you know, all FBI offices have like the night watch, uh, the, the night night clerks area, you know, and that's where all the TVs are and all the other stuff. And, you know, I'm getting off the elevator. I'm going into the office uh, in downtown Phoenix and the night night clerk says to me, hey, look at Ken. He says a, a small plane just crashed in the World Trade Center. And as we're watching it, we see the other aircraft crash into the other tower. And I'm going, this is, this is, this is Al-Qaeda. And I remember grabbing, getting on my phone, calling my supervisor up. I said, hey, we got to take about 10 agents and we got to go to Embry-Riddle University. And we got to locate these guys that are members of that organization. Because by that time, the, these guys had recruited about 10 other individuals at the university up there to be part of their Al-Mahajan organization. And I tell you, Jerry, it was the worst feeling I ever had in my life because on the drive up there, like I said, it's about 150 miles north of Phoenix and we were flying up there. We were rolling code up there. And I just kept thinking to myself, Lord, Lord, please let 
all the guys that we had identified in that communication, let us let us have them. Let let let, let them be where they're supposed to be. And, so, and, and, were you you were thinking that they were on the plane? Yes. Uh huh. Mm. Yep. And, and the same. And, wow. and I was also I was also thinking of the guys that were on the America West Airlines flight too. So we had people trying to locate them too. So I mean, I said this is this is not good. That's my mindset on that fateful day, and, and we found everybody but two. You know, and the two guys that we we initially contacted, we rounded up right away. We just kept an eye on them, interviewed them, interrogated them the whole nine yards. But we couldn't find two, and then we subsequently found them within the twenty four hour period in another state. And so everybody that was listed in my memo was was accounted for. But here's where we go from there, and this is what I want the audience and I want you to know. Hindsight is always twenty twenty, but you know, like I said, you know, this has just been my fate. I'm going to what if myself to death uh, about what could have happened, or maybe what would have happened, you know, until the day I die. But in two thousand two, we hit. When I say we, U.S. government, uh, with the assistance of uh, Pakistani intelligence officials, we hit a house in uh, Faisalabad, Pakistan, uh, looking for, at the time, we believed him to be a significant player. After his arrest, he wasn't really that significant. He was significant. He was a bad guy that we took off the battlefield, but he wasn't as high as U.S. intelligence originally thought. We took a guy by the name of Abu Zabaida off in, in, in an apartment in Faisalabad, Pakistan. A gunfight ensued. Uh, Abu Zubaydah was wounded, uh, seriously wounded. And uh, who's cowering in the corner of this, at that time, one of the world's most hunted guys, you know, that, that the World Intelligence Services was trying to find, was Ghassan al-Sharbi, the Saudi kid from every real university. Now, I submit to you this, and this is what I've told Congress, this is what I've told the Blue Ribbon 9-11 Commission. Nobody at that, that held the position like Abu Zubaydah did at the time would let any person that they did not think significant hang out with them in their in their in their hideout. All right. So here's this guy from Embry Riddle University who he and his friend, his friend primarily the Big Mouth, said, uh, you know, I consider you a legitimate military target of Islam. Here we find him cowering in the corner uh, after a gunfight where his good buddy Abu Zubaydah was wounded. Kassan al-Sharbi is now known as detainee number 682. So he's been in custody in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba since 2002. I, I have had that, the opportunity to go down and interrogate him several times in Guantanamo. He is hardcore. You know, this quiet, meek guy, when we were interviewing him, remember his big mouth Lebanese friend was doing all the talking when we were interviewing him. He was quiet during the course of the interview, is now like, like a cell block leader down there with these extremists. And I, I wish I, I, every American could see like our interview and interrogation of this guy, because it would remind people. And I and I always I, I think we made a mistake by not filming them regularly, because I would love to use it as a teaching method to young FBI agents in Quantico and other agents that go to training, in service trainings to learn how to talk to these people. But it was remarkable. There were there were times when I thought I almost had him where he was going to talk to us. When, when he got taken into custody, and, and, and Al-Qaeda was kind of, I, I won't say coming apart at the seams, but they were in a state of disarray because the U.S. government really put a whooping on them. You know, we were really hitting them hard militarily in, in, in Afghanistan. And they were starting to lose control over some things. And if, I don't know if you remember, they started a bombing campaign in the kingdom of Saudi Arabia. And they were targeting Westerners and they were targeting uh, all sorts of things. But they were ending up killing a lot of uh, Saudi Arabian citizens, too, kids. 
I had requested from our legal attache in Saudi Arabia at the time. They said, get me some gruesome crime scene photos in Saudi Arabia, uh, especially involving children. Now, for your audience, it's not because I'm some kind of ghoul. I'm using this as a interrogation interview and interrogation technique because my subject, Cassano Sharby, who was sitting in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, had a 10-year-old brother, you know, that he was very close to, you know, and, and loved a great deal. Understandably so. It's your brother, and uh, so I, I, when we were sitting there talking to Kassan, who speaks impeccable English, you know, I told him, I said, "Look, at, I respect you as a warrior, going to war with us." I'm, I'm saying this just to just to get him, you know, feeling comfortable with me. I don't believe that, of course. And I said, "But, but I said, you know, while I honor you for being a soldier of Al Qaeda, I said when you were targeting governments." And, and other legitimate targets, I threw that word out there again, legitimate. I said, look what they're doing now. They're killing Saudi kids. And I showed those pictures to him. And he, he looked at them. He looked at me. He started crying, you know, and, and he started to say some things that I thought, we've got him. He's going to start talking to me now about how he was recruited. What, who else in Arizona? Did he meet the hijackers in Arizona? All sorts of stuff, you know. And then this is where I wish I had it videotaped. It's like an aura came across him. And it, I mean, there's no other way to explain it. And, and he, his eyes glazed over and he started reciting the Quran verse by verse. And, and, and then, he, then we lost him. And, and he's never talked to anybody. But what he did say to me before he got to that point was he goes like this. He says, Ken, he says, you have to realize something. He goes, uh, he goes, you guys, since I've been in your custody, have screwed with my brain enough. Had they brought you down, meaning me, because we knew him. We had interviewed him before, twice before, all right? And he goes like this. He goes, I would have talked to you. But he says, you guys have been playing games with me. And I use that as another learning point. Like I, And I, I've told former Director Mueller this. I've told, again, the commissions this and the Congress this. I said, you know, in the future, God forbid, if we ever find ourselves in this type of situation again, I hope it never happens ever, an attack on the likes of 9-11. But I go like this, I go, you know, when these people are former FBI subjects or they're FBI subjects, and we've talked to them before, no other intelligence community agency should be given the opportunity to talk to them before us, because we've already established some sort of rapport. Maybe it's good, maybe it's bad, but we're the quote unquote friendly face. We're the face. We're the person that he has spoken with before. There's another thing, you know, that I that I, that I regret. Had we been given that opportunity, I'm I'm fairly certain that Mr. El Sharby would have spoken to us. Now if you do a Google search on him today, you're going to find out that recently he has made uh, he's he's tried to reach out. He's tried to reach out to the government. He says he's willing to talk. Yeah, you because know, he sees what uh, the Saudi government uh, has been accused of doing here recently with the killing of uh, Khashoggi, the, the journalist, you know, uh, with the, uh, the 9-11 lawsuit in New York uh, targeting the Saudi Arabian government uh, uh, for their complicity. Some of their officials either knowingly or unknowingly given the hijackers money, you know, and he says, now you guys know what the Saudi government's all about. And he says, and, and I'd like to talk to you guys about them. And so I'm hoping somebody, you know, now I'm out two years. I mean, I don't have a need to know anymore, but I mean, I hope that somebody has taken him up on his offer just to go listen to him. Granted, he might be trying to influence us as well as inform us, but, but, but I hope we didn't turn off the, uh, the earpiece. I, I hope we've given him the opportunity to say something, but I want to, I want your listeners to know that again, here's another situation where two worlds collided. 
the arson case and this case. This guy that was at every Riddle University was arrested with, at the time, the number three guy in Al-Qaeda after a gunfight in Pakistan. And what we found out after we, we, we had him in custody was that he was planning on coming back to the United States and working with his buddy, Zachariah Subert, a Lebanese guy. He was planning on coming back to the United States, and he was going to conduct a series of bombings in the United States. He was going to be putting improvised explosive devices in places. We don't know, never identified the places. We never know what, how big, what type of devices he was going to use. We suspect maybe laptop computers, but he was, he was wanting to come back to the United States to conduct terror activity, you know, and, and, and thank goodness that raid in Pakistan prevented him from doing so. You know, we do know that when he was in uh, terror training camps in Afghanistan, that he was learning how to build improvised explosive devices. But here's a case where from a management perspective, and I was manager for a very short period of time, I, I, you know, n- nothing against the, the career development path, but I just didn't like managing. I'd rather be working the cases. But here's, here's a situation where we have to learn how to chew gum and walk at the same time, because there's no telling what we might have been able to prevent or what could have happened you know, if Mr. El-Sharby didn't get captured in Pakistan. He had intentions to come back here to kill Americans, you know, and we took our eyes off the ball for over a year. You know, I don't think that we would ever have that scenario happen again because 9-11 has, as you well know, significantly changed the way in which the FBI handles these type of cases and, you know, matters. And I, I, so I don't ever see, you know, Ken Williams' situation being replicated in the future because it took a horrific event like 9-11 to, to change things, you know. Well, and- I, I'm, I'm thinking about the mass shootings that have occurred and you know we are still sometimes second guess because of information that later was learned that we you know had some access to and you know so there are still questions about the ability of the FBI to obtain information be able to figure out what this is and stop things i hope i'm not making excuses or defending the FBI unfairly but trying to stop things that no one would have any idea or any prediction, uh, even for you, if your memo, which of course was five pages long, you never thought that it was going to be planes that were going to be used as missiles or bombs. No, no, not at all. You're absolutely right. But you know what? This is where somebody that was aware of that Operation Boy Jenka thing, you know, that was, that was being thought of in like the mid 1990s, 95, if they had seen that communication was said, Oh yeah, they were trying to do something like this back in 1995. The, the guy might be on to something. You know what I'm saying? I just I didn't see it, but I remember talking to Director Mueller once, and you know I, I consider him a friend. He's a nice man, uh, treated me very nicely. But one of the things that I remember telling him, and if he's listening to this, I don't know if you remember this, Mr. Mueller, but I, I remember telling him, I said, "Sir, since we have now doubled the number of agents that are working counterterrorism information. The likelihood of us coming across names of individuals that are going to do something in the future has significantly increased. And it's very likely, probably probable, that it will happen. I said, you have to start briefing the Congress and even more importantly, talking to the American people in an open forum, you know, during interviews, news media interviews, during public speeches, that that's a distinct possibility. So that people, when that does happen, as it did with the Sarnev brothers in Boston during the marathon, they'll know that we, we can't be everywhere 24-7, 365 days a year. So you, it kind of eases the blow 
to the American people and to our elected officials who might want to point the finger at us and say, well, you knew something about them. Why didn't you do anything about it? So I think we need to sensitize people in, in, in an elected office and to the, into the general public that, yes, the FBI does a great job collecting information. And we, we you know, Jerry, as well as I do, we, it's like trying to drink a sip of water out of a, a fire hydrant, a gushing fire hydrant. There's so much information that comes into us that it's virtually impossible to address everything. The best that you can hope for is that a case agent, a manager, an analyst will look at something and say, and, and be able to put, connect maybe one other dot to something to say, yeah, we got to run on this real hard. Because, you know, you, you, to, to run on everything real hard, what I saw happening was a little bit like this. And this is just Ken Williams' opinion. I'm not, I'm not speaking on behalf of the FBI. I'm speaking on my own opinion. I, I started to see a little bit of burnout. All right. What I mean by this is when everything's an emergency, nothing is an emergency over a period of time. And, and, and as much as we all want to get out there and really make sure we prevent something, you know, when that is every day, it was really like that after 9-11 for a long period of time. And, and, and guys and gals did a phenomenal job. And one day history will be written about that time period and Americans will realize how much was actually prevented from taking place in this country. But now as we are approaching almost 20 years after the fact, the information that comes in is still tremendous, still tremendous amount of information. Guys of my generation who are now retired and guys that are just getting gals that are just getting ready to retire have had 20 years of, of like fire drills. You know what I'm saying? It takes a toll on people. And my biggest fear is that burnout will, will happen and, and people will miss something, you know, and, and it's going to happen again. Because I can tell you one thing about this enemy, and I'm specifically speaking about Al Qaeda. They are very patient. You know, us in the West are impatient. We like instantaneous results. These people look at things in terms of centuries, not years. I mean, so 18, 19 years ago is not a long time ago for them. So I believe in my heart of hearts that they're sitting around somewhere plotting and scheming and, and considering conducting a more horrific attack than September 11th. Because if you look at the history of Al-Qaeda, you will see since their inception, since their beginning, every attack that they've taken upon the United States has been bigger than the previous one. 9-11 is pretty horrific. So what they may have in, planned in store for us in the future is darn right frightful. Yeah, because, that, sent, that sends shivers up my... Uh, yeah, it's downright frightful because you, you know these guys were, were, were in all sorts of academic disciplines. And not just aviation. These guys were in chemical, biological fields. I mean, all sorts of things. So if you put your thinking man's cap on, thinking woman's cat on, and you say, boy, if I'm an Al-Qaeda guy and I got a chemistry degree, or if I got a nuclear degree, you know, what, what am I capable of doing in the name of the cause? And, and as a counterterrorism agent, that's the way you need to look at it. You know, so if you, get a, if you develop a cell like these guys that we had at Prescott and you look at their academic backgrounds, well, for me, it was, it was evident that they were maybe wanting to do something with airplanes or at airports. Well, let you me know, ask it, you a question, mm -hmm. because when you first started your story, I think some people would have assumed that the people that you initially met in Prescott were actually on the plane, and they weren't. Yeah, no. So what were all of those extra people here for, just as support that's the million dollar question. You know, I, I personally, and again, this is, this is a, uh, this is just my belief. All right. And, and it's just based upon, uh, my knowledge of the field here. I mean, like you go back to 1995, if they were planning on doing 13 planes during that time period, like an operation boy Jenkins. I encourage your listeners to look that up on the internet. It was, I think it was upwards of 13 planes. I apologize if it's one or two less or one or two more, but 
On September 11th, they only used four. So this is what I believe. And I've also given my opinion to the 9-11 Commission and the Congress on this too. I believe that based upon the events that were happening in the United States prior to 9-11, the FBI Phoenix interviewing this guy, Subaru and El Sharby in Phoenix, Arizona, and rattling their cage a little bit here, what Harry Samet and others were doing in Minneapolis with Zacharias Musawi in, in the months leading up before 9-11 that the Al-Qaeda leadership got rattled and they said, hey, it's go time. It's go, not, it's go now or no go at all. Because I really do believe, although it hasn't never been admitted to by any of the leadership in Al-Qaeda that we have in custody, all right, that that's the case. But I think that they sped up the attacks because why would you go from planning something as massive as thir- with 13 aircraft and just settle on four? You know, I think they really thought that things might have been unraveling. And why are all these extra people here yes. studying yes. at these uh, aviation universities? Yep. yep. And Jerry, you know the other good Ooh, point. Interesting. I, and the other thing that the other thing that I tell people, there's a situation that just took place. I think it was in the Philippines. Don't quote me on this. Just within the past couple of weeks, where. Uh, there's a guy by the name of Omar El-Bayoumi who was, uh, if you read the 9-11 Commission report, he was a critical player in the LA, San Diego area at the time that actually hosted or is accused of, you know, uh, helping uh, two of the hijackers, Khalid Al-Midhar and Nawafa Hazmi, one of the guys that was living here in Phoenix, Arizona for a period of time, get settled in San Diego. Yeah, I don't know if you remember that big controversy and that, that was a big deal. They were allegedly living in the home of an FBI informant and that was another big deal because that went unnoticed and unchecked. My, my point being is that Omar Al-Bayoumi, his son was recently arrested either in Taiwan or Thailand, it's one of those places, because he was learning how to fly with other extremists, Muslim extremists. So, I mean, he, he, when I saw that, again, it put a chill up my back. I go, here we are, we're on generation number two, and these guys are still dabbling around with airplanes, you know, and still maybe wanting to do something dastardly, and, and nothing changes. And, and, and that's why we have to maintain our vigilance with these guys. You know, I, I do some stuff still with the FBI, like I'll teach some new guys and gals on, on how to look at these guys and work these guys. I've been invited to attend a, a counterterrorism symposium in Kuala Lumpur, Malaysia, in, in, in June of this year. I uh, got contacted by the FBI's International Operations Division, asked me if I'd like to go down and talk to their group, and I, I, I'm going to do it. But one of the things, th- th- these guys, they are dedicated to bringing us down, to hurting us, all right? And, the, and and you just don't give that up by the killing of Osama bin Laden. It's an ideology. It's not an individual. It's an ideology. And these people still have that ideology. It's not going away anytime soon. And Americans need to be prepared for to, to continue to put their thumb on this on this target and to keep it uh, to keep Americans safe. Because look at our friend Mr. Suber getting back to the Phoenix memo, right? What was he studying? He was studying aviation security. So think of him like today, if we weren't on him, he could be the head of security at an international airport anywhere in the United States, in Europe, Asia, Africa, you know, and, and allowing Al-Qaeda operatives to do something dastardly to airplanes. That's just one scenario. Electrical engineering as it relates to aviation, like Subaru was studying or uh, El Sharby was studying. All right, now we know he was going to make improvised explosive devices with that stuff, but he could have learned electrical engineering in any other school in the United States. Why? In aviation school, are they teaching their people how to, you know, do something faulty with wiring, you know, to wire an airplane wrong if they get a, a mechanics degree or they get some sort of job at an airport 
or an airline to service their airlines, you know, by working on their electrical wiring, you know, is he, is he going to deliberately be able to bring an airplane down by doing that? And, and the list goes on and on and on. And that's just in aviation. I mean, think of the other disciplines where we've known that these guys have gotten degrees and, and it, it's downright frightening. You know, there's a lot of people now, and God bless them for wanting to work for our, our great agency, the FBI, but they were kids when 9-11 happened. They don't remember really the details of that. I mean, you know, they, they were in grammar school, you know, and, and now they're becoming FBI agents. And older guys like me and you, older agents need to remind them that this stuff is out there and you got to you got to keep the pressure on and and you got to be always being creative and trying to figure out, you know, I always, I would always ask myself, what would I do if I were a terrorist? You know, what would I do? How would I do it? I think the most frightening thing is to recognize that next year, in 2021, yeah. mm-hmm. is the 20th yep. year anniversary. And I yes. would imagine if you are looking to do something, that yep. that would be a great date yep. to do it. That's it's, absolutely frightening. It's so true. And, you know, listen, we we have done some things. I say we, I'm talking we as a culture, not specifically the FBI. We have done some things to increase the safety of our flying public. But in my professional opinion, as well as my personal opinion, not nearly enough. I mean, I don't think the American people would ever put up with the type of security that, let's say, for instance, uh, that El Al uh, imposes on, on their uh, customers when they're flying into Israel. I mean, I don't know if you've ever had the pleasure of flying on an El Al flight. I mean, excellent airline. The security is tremendous. I mean, when I, I, I've flown them once, and it was the most enjoyable flight I've ever had. I don't mean to sound like I'm an ad for El Al airline, but, but the security, I mean, I just felt once I went through the security... I was safe on that airplane. Now, I hate to say this about our own situation here at home, but I don't feel any more safer on getting on an airplane today than I did pre-9-11 or immediate post-9-11 world. Wow, that's saying a lot. Well, I was just in in Europe in um, September, Mm -hmm. and I, I do know that in in Paris, that they actually stopped, I would say, at least a third of everyone that came through, including mm-hmm. me, and went through my mm-hmm. suitcase. Yeah. Um, and it was a surprise, and it was mm-hmm. inconvenient. But boy, mm-hmm. I did feel a lot safer yes. knowing yeah. how much time they spent on actually going through bags, not just yep. looking at, you know, an x-ray. And when you're in Israel, if you ever had the pleasure to go there, I, I've spent a lot of my career over there. When you're getting on a flight over there, I mean, then not only, I mean, they're profiling you in line and they're sending security personnel, security professionals that have been trained in, in profiling and, and have been trained in interviewing to see how you're going to respond. I mean, so if anybody's up to no good, I mean, they got to have nervous steel because these guys are going to make, and, and these guys and these gals are going to make you a little uncomfortable as you're waiting to get on an airplane. Now, I can't see that taking place in the United States. First of all, we're like 10 times the size of the state of Israel, and and it would delay significantly delay air traffic. But my point being, and this is where I'm going with it, I'm not being critical of our aviation security. I'm I'm being realistic. It's still a vulnerable target. And and they got a big bang for their buck on that target, no pun intended when I say that. But I mean, they got a lot accomplished on that on that for less than the average cost of a home. And let's say, I think the saying was back in the day in Virginia, you know, like $500,000 or whatever, you know, they were able to put this country into a two wars. We spent our precious resources and our, our young people's blood, you know, lives, countless millions and millions, hundreds of millions, probably billions of dollars. 
in in warfare, uh, you know, destroying countries, uh, all for like a half a million dollars. I mean, so the, the return that they got on their investment was tremendous. So there would be no reason if I were a terrorist leader that I would want to do that again. You know, and, and and that should make people nervous. I'm not doom and gloomer. I'm not a chicken little, the sky's falling type of guy. But that's well, what. Let me, let me let me ask you straight out. Mm-hmm. Do you think we're safe? Are safer? I think we're safer from the standpoint of this. With the reorganization of the bureau in the years after 9/11, I know a lot of our colleagues did not like a lot of the reorganization, but it needed to be done. It was either had to be us or it was going to be a whole new organization that was going to be created. You know, uh, there were senators after 9/11 that wanted to take this responsibility away from the FBI, which I thought would have been a tremendous responsibility and create a whole other organization. You know, and to some extent they did with the Department of Homeland Security, okay, but they still had trust and confidence in the FBI and left it with us. So I think we're safer. We retooled, we reorganized. Our information databases are a lot more powerful, a lot more better, a lot better than they were in the years before 9-11. The analytical support that we got, I know a lot of my colleagues, the old schoolers that have now retired like you and I, didn't like a lot of that stuff because they thought that it was analysts telling agents what to do and all this other stuff. I said, no, don't look at it that way. These are assets. They're critical people, members of our team. I mean, they have the pleasure and luxury of taking all the information that guys and gals like you and I collect, Jerry, and looking at it while sitting behind a computer screen because that's their job. Where as an agent, we've got so much that we're responsible for that we often don't have the luxury to sit back and look at the totality of all the information that we ourselves are even collecting, you know, and do an analytical job on it. You know, I, I don't know about you. I was not trained as an analyst. I mean, you, you learn it as an investigator by rote memory. I mean, you just keep doing it and doing it and doing it during the course of your investigation. You get, you get pretty good at it, but right out of the barn, you're not that good at it. You know, right out of the academy, you're not that good at it, you know? So, I mean, to have this extra analytical staff there, I thought was wonderful job that was done uh, to get these uh, young men and women on board and, and to help investigators, you know, piece together the puzzle of the pieces that we're collecting for them. So I do, from that perspective, I think we are safer, but I, but I think where we, we let our guard down is we think that that's, that's history and it's not history. What I submit to you is this, th- these people think in terms of centuries, we think in terms of days, weeks, months, and years. They think in terms of centuries. They look back to the Crusades, and they still laud their great Muslim warriors back in those days. And they talk about events that took place 2,000 years ago as it was like last week. And that is the darndest truth. And anybody that would argue with me on that, I would say, well, then you've never interviewed a real guy that was with Al-Qaeda or ISIS or or one of these radical organizations, because this is the way they think, you know, and, and, and to us Westerners that aren't familiar with that, they find that hard to believe, but it, but it is the truth. My, my concern is that we're going to we're going to lose that cutting edge. And I think we need to not be chicken littles and, and say the sky's falling, but we have to always remember that there are a lot of evil people out there that are plotting evil things. And that's not talkers because they've actually pulled it off. And, and, and again, if they want to hurt us, like I said, what, less than $500,000 and look what they've look, look at the changes that they affected in the United States and the world. But just speaking from our point of view, the United States, everything in our lives that has changed as a result of that day for that low sum of money is a big return on their investment. And if they want to reach out again and touch us, uh, they're more than capable of doing so. Well, 
this has been fascinating. Just yeah, I really absolutely. appreciate the opportunity. Yeah. So I and I do want to just do you know a a quick run through of, sure. of your FBI career. Sure. But before we do that, mm-hmm. you know, you use the word haunted and you used you talked about what ifs Mm -hmm. and i know you're saying that right now that you've kind of come to terms with that but i really am interested in how you got through those what ifs right after 9-11 on that day and those in those days and weeks and months right after that you know especially when you were testifying before the commission I can't imagine. I mean, I thought about you. I, I didn't know, you know, you then, but I can tell you as an agent, yeah. you know, seeing you on TV and, and, mm-hmm. and reading about you in the paper, I thought about you and I wondered about your emotional, um, you know, how, how you were getting through that emotionally. I tell you, to be honest with you, it was not easy at all. Uh, it was uh, very taxing on my family. I ultimately ended up divorcing my wife, put the poor girl through a lot of stuff. I mean, I was never home uh, right after 9-11. I mean, I was starting to get a little physically ill with anxiety and stuff like that because it was go, go, go. I mean, you know, like, okay, this happened. In terms of the what ifing, that didn't really set in until like the dust had settled, so to speak, and we were in a routine. But initially in those days, and all the agents, including yourself, that were working for the Bureau on September 11th, 9-11, will always remember that because it was all hands on deck and it was it was game time. It was go time. I remember sleeping many nights at the office, just taking a nap for an hour and a half, 40 minutes or whatever, and then up and running again and, and just doing what we had to do to keep the country safe. You know, everybody was doing it. Nobody was complaining about doing it. That's what's special about the men and women of the FBI. When it's game time, everybody's on their game, and you're very proud of it. But for my family, uh, you know, if I had one regret, I mean, I got divorced after 25 years, and I can say I've been divorced now like nine years. It did have a tremendous impact on my wife, and she's a wonderful woman, wonderful mother. And, and you know, this job, I not this job, me, you know, based upon her response to my, my job responsibilities kind of made it really rough on her because I was not around a lot because I was working all the time, traveling here, traveling there, going overseas here, going overseas there, all over the country doing our job. Left her with a, a, a lot of a lot of heavy lifting to do at home, you know, raising kids and, you know, taking care of house repairs, you know, ordering, you know, getting contractors and everything else in there. Kind of a, it's not funny, but it was like the weekend before September 11th. I think September 11th was a Tuesday, if I remember correctly. You know, that weekend I started remodeling one of our bathrooms. Right. I said, yeah, let's get this done. And I started knocking tiles off the walls and, you know, just really enthusiastic about putting in a new bathroom. And obviously that I never got to finish that. So she had to hire a contractor. I had to hire a contractor. So that one bathroom went on to the whole house being remodeled. So it was, it wasn't until after the dust settled, then I started what ifing things and it got very depressing. I'll be honest with you. I spoke to some friends about it and I just said, what if this, what if that spoke to my, my priest about about it. And, uh, you know, and it just said, Hey, you know, it took me a time to come to grips with that. You don't have control over everything. You know, I mean, bad things happen when bad things want things to happen. You can't, we're not superhuman. I mean, you just can't prevent things from happening. You know, certain things have got to line up. Everything's got to be in place. I'm, it's just, I'm not an individual. I'm part of a broader team. I mean, we're part of the U.S. government. I mean, you know, if it was meant to be prevented, I mean, there was any number of FBI agents, any number of CIA officers, any number of defense intelligence agency people, 
we missed it, all right, collectively as a nation, not as an individual. You know, and, and it took me a long time to come to grips with that, but I did, you know, and, and I really do think, you know, because of my faith, you know, the, the good Lord helped me get through that. And uh, I, I've come to grips with it. So it is what it is. But I, I, I still, I, I say I'm haunted by it because I do think that we were so close, you know, in this United States, whether it be in Minneapolis or whether it be down here in Arizona. It used to anger me at times. And, and you, you'll get this mentality, Jerry. Sometimes the bigger offices in the FBI will have a tendency to ignore the little offices. You know, at the time before 9-11, we were a little office. Now I think we're like the fifth largest office in the United States you know, because we're like the fifth largest city. You know, it's like, so when you're dealing with the mega offices, like the New Yorks and the WFOs and stuff like that, you know, they'll look at, oh, what is this? What are these people in Phoenix talking about? You know, they're, they're a cow town. They're out in the middle of nowhere, you know, but as I pointed out to you, these guys were conducting their hatred and they're spewing their vitriol out of a, a hunting lodge in rural Arizona, Cowboyville. So I think if anything, it, it, what we were able to demonstrate was the whole country's got to be on alert to this stuff because if it emanated from here, and like you said at the beginning of the interview, you had no idea about the, you know the presence of this Al Qaeda type of stuff in Arizona, and I told you about some of the history, you know, very just touched on it briefly at the beginning of the interview, taking place in Tucson. It can happen anywhere in the United States, and I would submit to you that you'll find them more in probably rural areas now than you will in big cities. Why? Because big cities have the uh, resources, i.e., more FBI agents, uh, more police officers you know, more firefighters, everything to, to be on the lookout for that type of stuff. What is your message to current agents who are working terrorism cases? Well, my message to them would be learn what you can about the nature of the target. Like right now, what, what, what I would be telling my agents right now would be learn as much as you can about Iran. Learn as much as, as you can about the Shia uh, religion. Learn as much as you can in terms of the 79 revolution in Iran and get to know who these people are because things are kind of testy right now between the United States government and the Iranian government. And uh, the Iranian government utilizing their proxies such as Hezbollah could cause great harm and destruction in the United States. I mean, they have been operating in the United States for decades since the revolution. And the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, Hezbollah, the Al-Quds Force, you know, are, are, are very uh, worthy opponents and they're lethal. The Bureau is not going to give you a little manual to teach you about Hezbollah, teach you about the Iranian Revolution, teach you about that. But go to Barnes & Noble, go to a bookstore, get online, read about this target and start getting ready. I hope we never have to go to war with them, but start getting ready for that possibility and really take it to heart. And just don't pay lip service to it. Don't wait for, you know, what, what we used to say, Jerry, Ray, Ray, you had lead agents and you had case agents in the FBI. Yes. All right. And a lead agent is some agent that's going to sit around on their duff and wait for a supervisor to assign a lead to you to go out and cover that lead. You know, a case agent is going to be the agent. He or she's going to get out there and is going to dig something up uh, because it's their responsibility to dig it up and try to either put somebody in jail or prevent something from happening or to recruit a good source of information. We cannot do this job by ourselves. We need people within our community, informants, confidential human sources, whatever the verbiage of the day is for them now, to do our job, to be our eyes and ears out there in different communities, whatever violation it is that you're working, to get us information that will keep America safe. You know, so uh, what I would say is, and I'm not saying they're not doing it, is take it seriously. One of the things, if you don't mind me giving my two cents on something, and I don't know if this is true or not, 
but I got to confirm it. But I had heard that there's some kind of class in Quantico right now where they're teaching people how to communicate with people, how to talk to other people. And, and I hope that's wrong. I'm, I'm going to cooperate this week. I'm going to meet with some colleagues that are still active duty guys and gals. I'm say, hey, this is right. Well, you're going to have to let true. me know if you, I, find, I, if you find out. Yeah. Because what, what I'm saying is this. It's like, and I'm not saying that all the younger people are like this now, but what I've noticed go to a restaurant or you go to a club or whatever, a sporting event or whatever, everybody's nose is buried in the cell phone. You don't see people, a lot of people like really engaging in conversation without that darn device in their face. Before I retired, I had, you know, maybe one or two new agents that were like that. And I'd say, put that darn thing down. When we're sitting here talking to somebody, it's very rude for you to be looking at your cell phone. Pay attention to what that individual that we're speaking to is saying. You know, like I said earlier in the interview, the most important thing you could do as an agent is be a good listener. You know, in the Oklahoma City bombing case where that was critical because we had to do very little talking. Myself and Agent Brad Petrie, I don't know if you ever talked to Brad Petrie. He's in Southern California now, but he retired out of Oregon. When we talked to Michael Fortier for, uh, on the Oklahoma City bombing case, he was his own worst enemy because you know what? He thought he was smarter than us and we let him think he was. And we just let him talk and we just listened and we recorded everything. Not, not, figuratively recorded things, whatever tape recorder, but recorded it by notes and did excellent 302s on, then let him hang himself. And he ultimately did hang himself. And then we were able to get information about the bombing conspiracy and everything else, you know, so, but so many agents are just, they want to hear themselves talk, you know, just let other people do the talking. But to answer your original question, though, you have to take the terrorist target seriously, no matter whether it be Sunni Islam, Shia Islam, or anything in between, a lone wolf, you know, whatever, because there's only a few thousand of us across the country that work this stuff and around the globe. And if and, and we're only as strong as our weakest link. If those men and women that are signed counterterrorism want to really earn their paycheck and protect our country and live up to our oath office, then you've really got to take it seriously. And, and don't pay it lip service. Don't go in there. It's not an eight to five job. Never is an eight to five job working counterterrorism stuff. A lot of these maggots get up and they're starting their night at like midnight. And that's when you're out with your informants debriefing your informants after uh, everybody else is dribbling on their pillow at night. If you got families, it's got to be a fine balancing act. Now, I'm, I'm preaching something I didn't practice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I was going to say, it's, yeah. it's, it's kind of hard to do, yeah. even for uh, those agents who aren't working terrorism. You know, it, it is addicting, you know, being an agent and, and working cases. And we all have to kind of keep in mind that there is a balance. All right. So thank you so much for speaking directly to the percentage of my audience who okay. are current uh, and uh, former FBI. I thank all my brothers and sisters and you too, man. We're all in this together and we all know what it's like. <laughs> all right. But before we go, just real quick, just I want to spend you know, just a, a few minutes learning a little bit more about you because people are always fascinated how my guest became agent. So I'm asking you the question, when did you become an agent and why did you become an agent? became an agent in 89. And, and I, I became an agent because my dad was a police officer in New Jersey, and I wanted to be a cop. In fact, I was uh, I was weaned on uh, the old FBI show. Remember that with Ephraim Zimbalist Jr.? And then I was weaned on Adam 12. You know, uh, I always wanted to be an L.A. cop. So when I got old enough, I moved to Southern California, and I, I tested for the uh, San Diego Police Department and the LAPD. And I got hired by the LAPD first, but at the time, San Diego PD called me, and at that time, I was courting my wife. So I stayed with San Diego PD, and then when I had the opportunity to join the FBI, 
I took the FBI test and I became an FBI agent. It was a lifelong dream and I got to fulfill it. So I don't know how many people are blessed to be able to say that, but I'm blessed. And you had mentioned that you retired uh, a couple of years ago. What are you doing yep. now? I'm working with Keith Tolhurst, who gave you my name. We got uh, Tolhurst International. We do uh, private investigative work. We do training. We do active shooter training. We do all sorts of all sorts of training. We train uh, other agencies how to recruit informants and stuff like that. So I've been doing that now with Keith for about a year. And although it's it's not as exciting as being an FBI agent, it's it's fun hanging out with the guys and and keeping the investigative skills honed. I also do some part-time work when they call me with the FBI. Like I just mentioned, the FBI asked me to go down to uh, Malaysia in June of this year to speak at a counterterrorism symposium, and I'm going to go down there and do that. You know, I'm also working as a private investigator uh, for Krindler and Krindler in New York who are suing the Saudi Arabian government on behalf of the victims, families, and survivors of September 11th. So that's my way of giving back for that. I'm, I, anything and anything I can do to help those victims out and their family members out, uh, I'll do it. So just keep yeah. a little busy. Yeah, sounds like it. All right. So I like to give my guests the last word. And you have already given us so many <laughs> wonderful words oh. of wisdom. But oh. is there is there anything left that you would like to say? Uh, I think I've said it pretty much all, but I will say this. And I know it sounds corny, but I lived this my whole life as an FBI agent. Remember the day you first joined the FBI and the reason why you joined the FBI. I joined because I love my country and I wanted to give something back to my country. From a counterterrorism perspective, you know, I live and eat and breathe it even to this day. If you see something that's not right, give us a call. Let, let us be the arbiters on whether or not there's something there or something that's not there. If you see something and you don't report it, you'll have to live with that on your conscience for your whole life. And you go, maybe I could have done something to stop it. Give it to the professionals, whether it be your local law enforcement agency or the FBI. And we work jointly together and we will give you some uh, relief on your concerns. So you see something, say something. And that's the end of the interview. At jerrywilliams.com, you'll find a photo of Ken Williams. You'll find links to lots of articles about Ken and the Phoenix Memo. I included a link to the Office of Inspector General's special report where you'll be able to read, of course, redacted and unclassified copy of the Phoenix Memo. There's also an article about the Phoenix Mountain Arsonist case. I hope you enjoyed the interview and that you'll share it with your friends, family, and associates. If they're not sure how to listen to a podcast, have them read the post on my website, How to Listen to a Podcast, and subscribe to FBI Retired Case File Review on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. This podcast is about true crime. But if you're also interested in crime fiction, I want to invite you to join my reader team, where once a month, I keep you up to date on the FBI and books, TV, and movies. When you join my reader team, you get access to my FBI reading resource, which is a colorful list of more than 50 books about the FBI, books written by FBI agents who have been guests on this podcast nonfiction, crime fiction, true crime, and memoirs. You can join on my website or use the link in the description of this episode in your podcast app. I would love it if you also check out my books. My nonfiction, FBI Myths and Misconceptions, a manual for armchair detectives, which goes through 20 cliches and misconceptions 
about the FBI and books, TV, and movies. And there's also my Philadelphia FBI Corruption Squad crime series. All of my books are available wherever books are sold. Thank you for listening to the very end, and I hope you come back again for another episode of FBI Retired Case File Review with Jerry Williams. Thank you.